This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 21st, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Cordelia Fine on seeking sex differences in the brain. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm. He's the editor for our online daily news site. He's here to share some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on how to climb vertical glass walls. Gecko's ability to scamper up and down walls has fascinated scientists for years. Their secret to seeming weightless, tiny hairs that interact at a molecular level with the surface as they pass over. So the question is, Dave, why can't we do this? <laughs> we've certainly tried, but we've really run into this problem, the scaling problem. It turns out that it takes a lot of engineering to figure out how not just to get us to stick to something, but actually to get whatever we are stuck to to actually support our weight. Even geckos have problems with this, even though theoretically they should be able to drag a 130-kilogram linebacker up the side of a building, they can only lift about 2 kilograms. So the question is, can we sort of even overcome problems that the gecko hasn't been able to overcome to create a device that will allow us as much heavier than geckos to scale the side of a building. This new study looks into making sticky paws for people. Right. And there's some engineering involved in order to make us like a gecko and better than a gecko. What did they do to improve on the gecko? Well, you mentioned the geckos have these tiny hairs. And so the researchers manufactured these silicon micro wedges, which really replicate these hairs on the gecko's feet that allow them to stick to objects. And then they assembled hundreds of thousands of these marker wedges onto these stamp-sized tiles. The team connected these tiles to these tendon-like springs and attached them onto this octagonal-shaped plate. Unlike gecko skin, the springs actually apply the same force to the tiles after they're stretched beyond a certain threshold, which is actually what limits the amount of weight geckos can hold. And so the loads are actually distributed much more evenly on these man-made gecko feet than actually on the gecko feet themselves. 
And this new technology allows people to climb glass walls. <laughs> they can. Actually, there's actually a very cool video with the story where it actually shows one of the scientists that was involved in this research scaling a glass building. Now, he doesn't go very high up. He only ascends about 3.6 meters. But what's really cool is, unlike tape or other adhesives, he's able to peel his hands off very easily from the glass and place them higher up on the glass, just like geckos do. And that's one of the really cool things about gecko's feet. It's not that they're just super sticky. It's that they can stick and unstick very easily. Now, is this for window washers only? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe window washers and and movie stars, uh, people who have seen the 2011 movie Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, saw Tom Cruise doing something very similar scaling the world's tallest building in Dubai. The researchers say that this is actually technically possible with the device that they've created, although maybe a bit too exhausting to apply to the real world. So it's for window washers and international spies, and also for NASA. How did they get on board here? (laughs) Well, it turns out that the researchers think that they can create these adhesive-equipped robots that can catch space junk. There's a lot of junk floating around there in space. And the question is, how do you catch it? How do you stick to it? And how do you unstick to it so you can sort of move it into different places? And this might be a really good way to do that. Next up, we have a story on hand transplants with feeling. Around the world, about 85 people have had hands transplanted or reattached after amputation. But recovery does not end when the wounds have healed. Many patients still lack complete sensation in their transplanted hands. Why do researchers think this might be, Dave? Well, sir, the thinking goes is that once we lose a hand or other appendage, the brain redirects the neurons that control that appendage to do something else, and actually fairly quickly after we lose that appendage. So, for example, people that have lost hands have reported increased sensations in their face, for example. So it's thought that these neurons sort of jump ship and move on to other parts of the body. And so the researchers in this study looked to test if that theory held up over time. How did they try to discover if the problem can be localized to the brain rather than the limb? So they found some of these 85 people that have had hand transplants. Some of them had had hand transplants as recently as two years ago, some as long as 13 years ago. And they really wanted to see what was happening in their brain. How had their brain adapted to these new appendages. They started with a task that's pretty easy for someone who has their own hand, which is feeling where someone is touching you, right? Right. They basically had the participants stick their palms out. The researchers touched the participants' palms with this really thin plastic filament, no thicker than a fishing line. They touched them at various points of their palm, and the researchers put a red dot wherever they touched the palm. Now, the subjects had to wear these red glasses, so they actually couldn't see the red dots, and the subjects themselves had to put a black dot where they thought they had been touched. And the researchers basically measured the distance between the red dot and the black dot to see if the subjects were being very accurate and, in effect, had very accurate sensation in their hand. Now, you and I can do that very easily. Our black dots would be right on top of the red dots. But that wasn't always the case for these people with the hand transplants. In fact, it depended on how long they'd have their hand? Right. The longer they had had their hand, the more accurate they were. This result was backed up by looking at brain activity. Exactly. The researchers looked at fMRI activity, which measures activity in various parts of the brain, and they saw that as people had hands longer, their brains transitioned from these sort of disorganized patterns of being able to control this appendage to much more organized patterns, as as if the brain was sort of remapping itself and saying, okay, I lost a hand. I sort of told those neurons to do different things. Now that the hand is back, I'm trying to relearn how to use that hand again. 
to me, the time scale on this is really amazing. I mean, you'd expect that the surgery would, you know, recovery might take six, you know, six months or something like that. But we're talking over a decade here. Does that mean that other neurological problems that we think are unfixable are maybe not as permanent as we previously thought? Well, one of the things the researchers mentioned is something called phantom limb pain. And this is when if you lose a limb, sometimes people still feel sensation in that hand or that leg or that foot or whatever, even though it's gone. And this really gets back to the idea that, you know, perhaps it does take a long time for the brain to recover, but that the brain actually can recover from some of these injuries. Lastly, we have a story on self-sacrifice. Out in the real world, we see examples of selfishness and self-sacrifice every day, though usually on a pretty small scale. In the lab, selfishness has been a lot easier to quantify than its saintly sister, altruism. Now, a new study purports to show that people can demonstrate this trait in controlled conditions. What kind of sacrifice are we talking about here, Dave? Well, we're talking about a financial sacrifice, and basically it comes down to that we're, we're willing to take a financial hit in order to not hurt another person. Hurt them how? <laughs> hurt them with electric shocks. So that was sort of the painful part of this experiment. The researchers recruited 160 subjects, and the first thing they did was to try to figure out how much pain they were willing to endure from electric shocks. This pain ranged from very, very minor to what the subjects defined as intolerable. I think this is a pretty clever part of the experiment because... That means everybody who was participating knew what the shocks felt like and right. kind of knew what the stakes were. Right. And when they had all been exposed, the participants were then paired up and asked to make decisions. What were their options? Well, they were paired up, and they actually didn't know the other person. They couldn't see the other person. And always one person was designated the decider. That was the person that got to decide whether he himself got shocked or whether he would administer shocks to the other person. And then the researchers offered them various amounts of money. And basically what it came down to is effectively the decider had to decide whether they would accept more money to shock somebody else or accept slightly less money to shock themselves. I already gave away that the subjects in the study behaved altruistically. How much money did they give up in order to not shock other people? Well, on average, participants were willing to make about 30 cents less to receive fewer shocks themselves, but they were willing to accept 60 cents less on average to shock someone else. Well, my faith in humanity has been <laughs> restored, but can you talk about why this is an important finding? Well, it's actually hard to prove one way or another whether people behave altruistically. And this is actually one of the first studies in the, in the lab to show that we may be more altruistic than we thought. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about all the viruses that live in your body and how just like bacteria that live in your body, they actually may be a force for good as well as evil. Also a story about what causes the highly energetic jets that blast out from supermassive black holes. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story about why so many Chinese and Indian students flock to the U.S. Also a story about Japan's controversial new plan for research whaling. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Can you tell someone's sex just by looking at their brain? 
If you read popular media accounts these days, you'd think the answer is a resounding yes. But careful analysis of the studies in this area suggests things are not quite so black and white. I spoke with Cordelia Fine about the state of neuroscience when it comes to sex differences in the brain. She starts out with a definition of neurosexism. Well, neurosexism is a term that I coined to refer to neuroscientific claims that reinforce and legitimate traditional gender stereotypes and roles in ways that are not scientifically justified. And that last part is quite important because the concept of neurosexism, as I see it, doesn't incorporate the idea that there's something intrinsically problematic or sexist about investigating sex differences in the human brain. But rather, neurosexism is referring to the subtle and, in popular media, not so subtle ways in which assumptions about the sexes can bias research design, analysis, and also interpretation of findings. What are some of the issues in research that aims to investigate sex differences in the brain? What kinds of things arise in the study design or in the way the results are interpreted? Well, there are a few key issues. One is that a particular reported finding of a sex difference that turned up in a journal may not actually be very reliable, may not be able to be replicated. And this is in part because there's great variability between individuals in brain activity and also neuroimaging being so expensive, they're often very small sample sizes. And of course, these sample sizes get even smaller if you're then dividing your sample by sex, which is, of course, a very easy and obvious thing for neuroscientists to do. But because journals, particularly in behavioral science, are more interested in positive findings than null findings, a report of a sex difference is much more likely to be reported and published than a null result. And all this together creates a situation that's very unhelpful in terms of proliferating false positive findings of sex differences. And then there's how that reported sex difference in the brain itself is interpreted in terms of what implications it might have, if any, for behavioral differences between the sexes. And of course, as all neuroscientists know, we're at very early days in understanding how the neural circuits of the brain give rise to our mental processes. But there is a temptation there for researchers to draw on what are often very inaccurate gender stereotypes to interpret their findings. Just to give you a very concrete example of that, this is one provided by the philosopher Robin Bloom. She looked at three different functional MRI studies of sex differences in emotion processing, and each of them had a different finding for sex differences in a particular region of the prefrontal cortex. One found greater activation in males, and the second one found greater activation in females, and the third found similar activation in the sexes in this particular region. And yet all three articles drew on the stereotype of females being the emotional ones to suggest that their findings indicated greater emotional control in males than in females. And then a third issue is that, I mean, we know from decades of scholarship in gender and behavior that differences between the sexes and behavior, they're different across time, across place, even within totally different social contexts. And yet neuroscience research in this area tends to simply make sort of single snapshot comparisons of, of one population at a particular time, a particular context, rather than to look at how social context or training or a particular population might reduce, eliminate, or perhaps even reverse sex differences in, uh, in the brain. Clearly, all neuroscientists understand that finding something in the brain doesn't mean that it's hardwired or innate. But at the same time, if you're only taking single snapshots of difference, you're actually ensuring that you won't collect any data that can challenge the idea of universal fixed sex differences in the brain. Well, can you share some of the more widely spread claims that have been based on this type of research? Uh, sure. So one issue is just there's a general effect 
here. Though, you know, any one particular study reporting in sex difference in the brain may not have a particularly large impact, but these three issues that I've just described, when you put them all together, you give rise to a scientific literature that's subtly biased towards the presentation of sex differences of the brain as, as more numerous, as more functionally important and more fixed than will be the case if these issues were attended to more thoroughly. But in terms of particular claims, one claim that's particularly widespread is the idea that there are very fundamental psychological differences between the sexes because of a difference in brain connectivity. So this idea that male brains have greater intrahemispheric connectivity while females have greater interhemispheric connectivity. And certainly that may be the case. I mean, males have larger brains on average than females, and for that reason alone we might expect differences in structural wiring between the sexes on average. But the question is, what are the behavioural implications of that? Now, this was a sex difference that was reported recently, and even though this study didn't provide any evidence of a relationship between the sex differences in brain connectivity that we found and any behavioural characteristics, and then that being presented in the popular media as a demonstration of the neural basis of, you know, our traditional gender stereotypes, so women being better at multitasking and caregiving, for example, and men being superior at map reading. It sounds like the media has a big role to play here. Often what you'll see is that the tentative speculation that's made by a particular research, research article is then taken up by the popular communicators who will present it in a, in a very confident and often horribly exaggerated form. The media interest in sex differences in the brain just reflects a general widespread cultural interest and assumptions about sex differences. And of course, scientists are embedded in the same culture as everyone else. And that's why I think it is really important to be aware of how these implicit cultural assumptions about gender can influence decisions that researchers and, and others involved in the publication process are making. Results from these studies don't tend to segregate people into two tidy piles. What's more likely to happen when you study the brain and um, look for sex differences? Right. So, yeah, I, th I think brains can't be neatly divided into male and female categories in the way that genitalia almost always can. So what we know from animal research is that biological sex interacts in very complex dynamic ways with many, many different factors like hormones or stress or maternal care and so on. And this influences brain development in ways that can either in each particular case sort of create a sex difference or reverse a sex difference or neutralize a sex difference. And because of the complexity and number of these sex influences, we don't end up with distinctive female and male brains, but rather we end up with heterogeneous mosaics of female and male characteristics. And the Tel Aviv neuroscientist, Daphne Lowell, has a really nice way of describing the implications of this. Uh, what it means is that while certain brain characteristics may be statistically more common in males than in females or in females than in males, unlike with genitals, it means that knowing someone's sex doesn't enable you to predict the particular array of male and female brain characteristics that that person will have. And actually, importantly, this is true when it comes to gendered behavior as well. So men and women don't have distinctively different masculine and feminine psyches, but are rather more like a, a kind of gender pick and mix of masculine and feminine characteristics. There's so many interesting studies that people have done, and then how are we going to figure out which ones hold up over time? I mean, how, what, what kind of criteria should we be using to look at them? Well, I think meta-analyses are really a very helpful tool when it comes to sex differences in the brain. And back in 1995, there was a very influential paper published by uh, Shaywitz et al. 
that had reported sex differences in lateralization and language processing in males and females. And they looked at three different kinds of language processing, and for one of the different kinds of language processing, they found results that were consistent with this idea of the male brain being a bit more sort of within the hemisphere and the female brain being more across the hemisphere. Now, interestingly, in the title of their article, they emphasized the one difference rather than the two similarities. But I think what's especially important here is that subsequently that finding has not overall been replicated. So two meta-analyses have failed to find support overall for the idea that the male brain processes a language in a more lateralized way than the female brain. Yet, in fact, that original study is still being cited both by popular writers and actually often in the scientific literature too. But I think that really points to the importance of meta-analysis for collating studies, and in particular getting studies that have not reported sex differences and capturing those lost null results and incorporating them into meta-analyses to get a, a much more robust, reliable picture of, you know, is this a real sex difference or was it just a false positive? Do you have a few key ideas that people should think about when they are designing a study looking for sex differences? Like, how, how can they avoid some of the biases that keep cropping up? I think the steps really rise quite naturally out of what we've learned from gender scholarship. So, for example, we know from gender scholarship that often the behavioral differences between the sexes are rather small, there's a lot of overlap in the distributions, and also that brains aren't distinctively male or female. Now, this has implications for what kind of sample size is appropriate. It should also alert researchers to the possibility that rather than dividing their sample on the basis of biological sex, using a dimensional trait-based approach might be more suitable. Or, for example, we know from gender scholarship that gender differences in behavior are very responsive to time, they're contingent on time and place and context, and that every person who goes into the scanner, their brain is a product of this ongoing interactive and reciprocal influence between biology and environment. And of course, gender being such an important social category in the world, this affects the material, physical and psychological experiences that someone has had. So I think neuroscience needs to take this entanglement, as it's called, very seriously, which points to a need for more complex and sophisticated models and better ways of capturing the role of the environment. I think the most important step is to bring together these two approaches to sex differences that have historically run in parallel, the sort of social approach and the biological approach. So gender scholarship has undermined some of these common beliefs about gender that do seem to be implicitly at work in research design and interpretation. These beliefs that the sexes are very distinct psychologically and neurologically, that these differences are natural and fixed and variant across time and place. So I think really the most important step is for neuroscientists to incorporate these insights from gender scholarship into their research design, analysis, and interpretation of studies of sex differences in the human brain. A lot of the problems that we're seeing here in in looking at uh, sex differences in the brain apply to neuroscience as a whole, as it takes on these new tools and starts to take a look at brains and all these different modes. We see these same problems with study design with respect to totally different research goals. Do you think that there's a special case for neurosexism, or is it just uh, an offshoot of that? Yeah, look, there are a lot of similarities. So this problem that it's very easy to test for sex differences. And then if you find one, which of course can just happen <laughs> through statistical chance, that gets reported, but the many, you know, the 19 findings of similarity don't get reported. That is an issue 
in behavioural science generally. It's, of course, not specific to neuroscience. Perhaps it may be exacerbated in neuroscience because you have these very complex, noisy, variable data sets. You have a large number of degrees of freedom in terms of how you process them. And, and you know, they're still settling on the established ways of how these very complex statistical analyses are performed. I think, though, what's particularly important about these issues in relation to neuroscience is that when it comes to the public realm, there seems to be something, first of all, very authoritative about neuroscience findings. They're seen as being somehow more objective or more real than behavioral results. This is a phenomenon that's been described as neurorealism. And I think that there is this intuitive inclination to, to see something that's in the brain as well, then it must be this confirms that we always suspected about the differences between the sexes in the brain, so it must, you know, it must be very fundamental, even though on the one hand, of course, we're all very interested in neuroplasticity and the idea that the brain is the product of this interaction between biology and experience. So mm. I think in some sense you're, you're right that many of these issues are just commonalities with prior research into sex differences, but I think there is something a little bit special about neuroscience, particularly in how it's received in, in the public domain. Cordelia, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks a lot. Cordelia Fine writes about the science of sex differences in an Insight article this week. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.